All right, well, good evening, everybody. Just a lame way to end. Like, this has been so fun. And uh, well, I've been mentioning Eric uh, probably in every one of the talks that I've done. We, we end up doing that with each other over the last 25 years. 28 years, we show up in a lot of each other's talks. We met, just, just to give you a quick background so you understand what our relationship is, we met back in 1996, probably in January, January, February, somewhere in there of 1996. We were both students at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and uh, we were playing basketball in a gym one day, and it ended, and I was off, or we, we left, and I was sitting in front of the library, and he came riding by on this broken down jalopy of a bike. I found it in a dumpster. <laughs> so he was riding a dumpster bike and he saw me sitting there and just pulled up and we started to talk and next thing you know I was naming my oldest son after him. So that's how friendships happen, right? So <laughs> no, but we, we got to spend tons of time together before we had eight kids, four separate. I wasn't married yet and just had hours to talk about life and theology and the church, we wound up in a situation where we were co-pastoring. Um, we were teaching at a church that, that didn't have a pastor at the time, so we were going back and forth tag-teaming for a while and had a great time doing that. And as I mentioned last night, ladies and gentlemen, we were the greater Chicago area flag football champions in the season I talked to you about last night. Did you not talk about the Trinity Intramural Championship on I basketball? didn't get around to that. I, di I didn't want to give them the whole uh, championship background that we had, but it was just football last night. Yeah. So that's how we wound up here together. And obviously, Eric's a dear friend. Uh, he's opened up doors like this for me to even be at Hume, and so it's a privilege to be here. Now, you're over there talking to the high schoolers. And oh, I'll just say this. I've got a few questions uh, that I want to put out in front of Eric that I think will be interesting to all of us, but I know you've got questions too, so I'll try to make room for you to raise your hand and ask whatever you want along the way, okay? But I want to start out by talking about what's going on over there with the high schoolers. The theme is truth, and in some ways, it almost seems like that's such an obvious, such an obvious idea, but you've been laboring over there as I've gone over there and listened to different parts to get them to appreciate the importance of truth. Talk to us about that. Why do we need to do that? What have you been experiencing even in trying to communicate that? Yeah, I am so thankful for Hume's theme they chose. They actually chose it a couple of years ago, but COVID delayed being able to actually keep getting into, into gear. But it, it's even more relevant now than it was two years ago because increasingly we live in a culture that doesn't think truth even exists in, a, in an objective way, in a capital T truth way. And, it, you know, pluralism that all you have is your little perspective to go off of has been around for a long time, but it's, it's just been taking over where mm. people really think that truth that's outside of the individual, truth that is objective, truth that is true whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, is true nonetheless. And most people agree, yeah, and the, like gravity, all agree that that's true, but when it comes to issues of morality and meaning, and, and religious faith, most people say, well, that's your own little private thing you can have if you like, but please don't tell anybody that it's true for them too. So this relative truth, this subjective, what I would call a hyper-validation of a subjective 
perspective, a, primarily an affective and an emotional perspective as the only way to get truth that even creates reality. We were just talking about an mm. article we saw a couple years ago about a guy, who, a white guy, and he just decided he was Filipino. And he's not Filipino, but he decided he is. And we live in a, a world now where you get to do that. Completely defy any objective reality outside of yourself. And so it's really tough to, to tell kids that they don't get to determine reality for themselves. They get a choice, but they don't get to determine the actual ultimate outcome. God does. He's the creator. And so, so giving God authority over our hearts, over our ideas is quite a stretch for a lot of people in our society, especially younger people. It's all they've ever known. And they live in a world where incoherence, mm -hmm. statements that don't make any sense at all in connection to reality, sound deep to them. And they'll affirm these incoherent statements. A statement like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or a man can have a baby, or... I'm a white man who thinks he's Filipino. I'm a white man who thinks he's Filipino. They actually say, oh, okay, cool. Instead of, what? This guy needs help. And, 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 and so, so it's a real challenge not to be a cranky old man saying, back in my day, people actually used to believe the truth. But I, I feel, like, and I'm angry at the lies yeah, that talk, they're constantly bombarded with. Talk about that because there's some pushback. We've even talked about that a little bit in here. When you see something that, um, that you know is just not right, and now the cultural tide is that we need to accept that the way you just said it. Uh, any pushback against that seems offensive, you know, and, and, and we talked about that. You even got some pushback as you were making some very strong statements to the kids from, from some of the youth pastors that are here saying, hey, and again, I think these are guys that hold the truth, but they just said our kids are offended by that. You know, you're, you're stepping on some toes with some of the things that you're saying. So he was having conversations about that. So how do, you t how, how do you manage the need to talk about truth and yet still do it in a way that's not offensive or that at least is respectful of people? I, I want them to know that I love them in a fatherly way. And in the same way, when my kids are believing lies, I, I'm not going to have a level of empathy that gives any credence to a lie. And I mean, if my kid says I'm worthless, I'm going to say, oh, I I can see why you'd think that. I, I'm, I'm going to say, that's a lie. God says that's completely not true. Yeah. That lie actually comes from Satan. And so let's send that one back to hell. And, and so I want them to know, I, I do have an anger about lies. The, Satan's the father of lies. And God is the God of truth. And so it's really clear. It's really black and white. And I'm reading passages from John, which is the main text we're using. And he just goes after people. And the core passage for the whole series is Pilate's sneering question to Jesus when he says he's about the truth. And Pilate says, what's truth? And that's where we are in, in that sort of society. So I want them to see how much I care for them and how much I love them and how destructive lies are to themselves, to other people, and ultimately to the glory of God. Yeah. And so, so even being being intense or passionate about truth seems like you're overboard in a culture that doesn't even have a concept like that. Yeah. So we, it's a tough, tough road to navigate. We talked about last night, it's, it's okay to believe whatever you want, just don't take it too seriously. And you said that over there to them too, don't feel any passion about it. 
And, and yet again, I don't think that it's, I don't think they're incompatible ideas to feel passion for something, to say something strongly, and yet still be able to do it with respect. And like you said, you, you did a great job the other day just saying, again, I, I love you. I hate what's happening to you. And we got to find ways to be able to communicate that to people. I really do love you. I'm all about you. But I hate that, that you're being encouraged to go down this path. Yeah, and as we <laughs> talked last night, at some point... And I want to say, look, I'm for you, but at some point, if you start telling the lies too, yeah. I'm not for you. I, there's there's a, a level where I am opposed to the destructive nature that you're, you're putting out there. So if my kids are on social media with someone who's telling them lies, I'm not for that person in my kid's life. And, and so that's how I feel as I'm talking to these kids about this. So I don't want you to try to recap the whole week. I don't want to put that on you, and it'll be too much anyways. But what are just some of the, wh what has been the strategy over there in doing this? Like, what have been some of the emphasis points? What are some of the passages that, that we've looked at with them? Can you Yeah, there's six messages. <coughs> the first one is truth is grounded in the character of God, so, so truth in God. The second one is truth in the Bible. We know what God is like and what he has said in his word so it's the truth of scripture and then it was the, the truth of jesus person and work yeah so it's the word made flesh now that the word of god talks about which is why it leads us to life and jesus says i'm the way the truth and the life in his person and work and then last night was the the truth of our sin really tough again for for people to accept at all but but in a culture that is affirming about everything in, unless it's something that that I think is going to be unaffirming to me, then then it just it's just so hard for people not to hear it as intolerant and bigoted. And it, but the fact is, love is intolerant of anything that is destructive to the beloved. So, yeah. so last night was the the truth of our sin, and then tonight is we're going to give the kids an opportunity to to trust Christ tonight. And so it's really the gospel. And it's the truth of the gospel. And then tomorrow night is the truth of the Christian life. How do we live this out in our daily lives? Yeah. So I've been able to catch most of it. And one of the things that just stood out to me, I didn't even tell you this, but one of the things that has stood out to me uh, is just the need to, God, because I think sometimes we can get overwhelmed in thinking about what does it mean to be a good apologist for truth? That sounds like an overwhelming idea. But what people really, really need fundamentally is to have an encounter with Jesus. They really do. And so what Eric did on that night of talking about the person and work of Christ, he just read long passages out of John 4, out of John 5, out of John 6, and just allowed the, Jesus himself to speak, you know, 2,000 years later, to speak and for them to see it. He was stepping into people's broken lives and stepping into people's lives who were trying to make excuses for themselves and and who knew that they were living hedonistic lives. And, and Jesus just became the answer to them. He presented himself as the answer to them. And you did the same thing the other night. Jesus is presenting himself as the answer to you. Tonight, you'll have to make a decision about that. That kind of hangs over us all the time, doesn't it? Yeah, and I'm very concerned we not lose. And that's one of the things I love about Hume. Hume believes in the doctrine of conversion. Okay. That tonight, we have every right based on God's power and God's heart to expect that kids tonight are going to move from darkness to light, from lies to truth, and become new creatures in Christ tonight. We, we, a kid came up to me Tuesday night with tears streaming down his face. Sweet kid, really nice kid, beautiful 
certainly doesn't shave yet. And he, he, he just came up with tears streaming down his face and said, I want to trust Jesus for, for salvation right now. And I prayed with him after, got together with him the next day, and I said to him, if I talked to you yesterday morning and asked you if you were a Christian, what would you have said? And he said, I would have said I was. And I said, what would you have based that on? And he said, oh, I grew up in a Christian family. I went to church my whole life. And I said, so what happened last night? He said, I realized I really needed forgiveness, and I had never asked Jesus for it. And it was just a beautiful conversation and a beautiful simplicity of a 15-year-old kid understanding the gospel for the first time, even though he'd been raised in a Christian family. Mm. I think his parents would be shocked when he goes home. And I'm, I'm not putting any fault on them. I have a friend whose daughter came to Christ at a Salty the Singing Songbook concert. She prayed with a big puffy Bible, and my friend was like, no, this is not how I was planning it to happen. And she went and trusted Jesus. So I got to be, be the reaper of, I'm sure, what parents had been <laughs> investing for 15 years, and that's how it works so often. But, but it's just incredible to see God use his word, and kids who come up hating me the first night tears streaming down their face on Thursday night. So God yeah. works in amazing ways. Well, and when you present Jesus, I was, I was just thinking about this. What's going to happen over there? And we'll, we'll take some time and pray for that, um, maybe even after you leave here. But it'll be the same thing that it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was presented. Some are going to reject it. Some are going to say, I want to know more about it. And you've been making them curious about the real, the real gospel. And some are going to accept it tonight. It's the same thing now as has always been true when you present Jesus. So I want to go in a different direction, but before we do, do you have any questions you want to ask about what's been going on over there? Anything that, that Eric just said? Anything around that idea of truth? <clears throat> yes. Wait, is that, is that mom camp back it's there? It's mom camp. It is the mom camp. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, mom camp. Oh, that's right. We told them that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the best things about Hume is also one of the most challenging things about this ministry. If you ask anybody who's really in touch with the churches that come up, is you get a wide variety of philosophies of ministry going on, kinds of churches, kinds of youth pastors, uh, yeah, so in, in one day, I'll get polar opposite feedback from students and pastors and counselors, right? Uh, polar opposite. And so you need, a, you need to just be confident you're being faithful and, and go ahead with it and, and trust that God's going to use his word. Like I, I did, I was so convicted to just almost read three chapters of the Gospel of John last night. And if you want to argue with it, argue with Jesus. And, and so, uh, yeah, it... it, it it's, it's fascinating and challenging in a good way. And, I mean, if you ask folks uh, in leadership, we're all aware that it's not just the kids we're wanting to help. It's the pastors and, and counselors and leaders in the churches, too, where we want to make them maybe at times rethink a paradigm that they're using or a philosophy of ministry or an approach to ministry based on a, a solid biblical grounding it doesn't mean we got everything right, but 
But I'm very aware that I'm preaching to leaders of churches as well as kids every time I get up. Mm. Yeah. Good question. Any others on this topic? Go ahead. Thank you. Tell me your name. Oh, Dave. Dave will definitely get an A in his I was going to say, class. she's trying yes. to get, get bonus yes. points for him. Oh, okay. Um, thank you, Bonnie. That's very encouraging. That's beautiful. I, I preached at Hume San Diego one time, and I was talking to this youth pastor. And if, if you just thought, of, okay, if we were going to get a San Diego youth pastor out of central casting for a movie, <laughs> he looked like this guy, okay? looks like he surfs every day for three hours, right? And he said to me, hey, it was like the end of the week. He said, hey, dude, um, you know, I saw the brochure for our speaker, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Who is this old dude? And he goes, you did all right, man. You did all right. <laughs> so so funny go. to me. And just to show you how mature I've become, I had about 20 Bible verses about respecting the aged and the gray hair and that came flooding in my mind that I just didn't say. I just said, thank you. That's good. Any other ones? Go ahead. Olivia. Have you ever had a question about the Bible you weren't able to answer, and how do you continue to wrestle with that? You might have just got this one right here. <laughs> Go ahead. Theology so I've, I've been teaching college 25 years, and so I've heard a lot of questions. I've had questions myself that I still struggle with. But you know what one of the really cool things is to get to know the Bible well enough so you get those answers but you also get an understanding of the bible to know when it doesn't give an answer hmm. so the sufficiency of scripture is a precious doctrine but it teaches us everything god wants us to know and it also teaches us what he has not decided we need to know for life and godliness and everything he's created us for so there's a tremendous freedom in the sufficiency of scripture one to know i have everything i need to be everything god's called me to be and when there aren't answers in the Bible to questions, doesn't mean those questions aren't fine to ask. It just is important to know we're going off-road biblically 
when we're speculating about those things. And so I have loved the freedom of saying, you know what? I don't think God tells us the answer to that. I don't know if Adam had a navel. I don't know. And, and, um, and you know, my wife teaches in the honors program at Biola. Are you in the Tory program? And she leads discussions for three hours. So she'll go lead a discussion on the book of Genesis. And her desire is to lead them to talk about the sovereign grace of God in history as the creator and the providential controller of everything. And all they want to talk about is who the Nephilim are. And, and you know, were they giants? And, 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 and she's like, can, we, can, we, can we talk about what the, the Bible's actually making a priority? But we love to live in the world of speculation because that doesn't actually have any bearing on our lives if we don't have clear answers. And so it's really important to know what the Bible actually says clearly and what it doesn't. And so that's been really freeing. So yes, I've had questions myself. I've had people ask me questions. I also feel a tremendous freedom saying, that is a great question. I've never even thought of that. Let me, let me look into it to get back to you. And sometimes I say, you know what? I don't think there's a good answer. Or here's what I think I, I, I've come up with that. And so I want people to know I'm in process, even though I'm a theology prof. And, and there's a freeing aspect in conversation and relationship with that. When I'm willing to say, I don't know, that's a great question. They get this sense of, oh, I guess this isn't a competition. I guess this isn't trying to prove how smart he is. He actually really wants to learn, and my question is going to help him learn. So, so yes, definitely. And, um, and I think there are a lot of amazing, clear answers to a lot of these questions, too. Okay, so in the spirit of that question, I am going to read this question right. because I think this is, this is one that is different than, than some of the ones that really aren't as significant. There's all kinds of questions like this, right? Um, so somebody wrote this and gave it to us. In eternity past, in heaven where there was no sin, how did the sin of pride enter Lucifer's heart and turn him into evil? I've thought about this before. Where did that pride come from? How did sin enter into heaven? What will prevent this from happening again in the then perfect eternal heaven? Like how did, if everything was perfect in God's presence, how did sin and even the possibility of sin enter into an angel's heart and for a whole bunch of angels to follow after that? Yeah, I think the <clears throat> difficulty that question for us to think about an answer is the fact that when we deal with sin, we recognize an internal origin of it, but we also recognize an external influence that comes from demonic influences and a culture that's being held captive by those lies. So we battle this internal and external yep. influence of evil yep. and rebellion against God. In eternity past, in the original rebellion in the heart of Satan, there was an external influence for evil, but there was an origin in it in the angelic heart. And then, same thing you could say in the Garden of Eden, there, there wasn't um, sin like it is now in, in human nature. They were in a state of innocence. Yeah. But there was a demonic influence that did come. So Adam and Eve had an internal and external challenge. But in the, the original sin, an angelic person, you know the three kinds of persons, divine persons, angelic persons, and human persons. So an, angelic persons, the Bible goes to great lengths getting us to understand that the origin of sin is the human heart. And you'd never have an excuse, even if you have a lot of external influences for evil, because ultimately sin and evil is something that originates in the human heart. How did it start inside the angel, though? 
Yeah, how, the same, how did, same way it starts in anyone, except he didn't have external influences. He just had an internal ability to choose to against no. God's ways, just like yeah. Adam and Eve had the ability. Without a fallen nature before they rebelled, uh, there, there wasn't evil within them there like there is in fallen nature now, but they had this capacity to, to choose to decide, I'm going to decide good and evil for myself. I'm going to partake of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and make that call because I don't trust God with it. Hmm. Good. It seems like at the end of the day, what, what those kinds of questions wind up doing, and I see this all the time. I used to see it at seminary all the time. They either lead a person to turn away from the faith entirely because they don't get all the answers that they think they're entitled to. Watch guys do that at seminary all the time. Or they go the opposite direction. They dig their heels on, in on some kind of answer. Even though the Bible is not entirely clear on the answer, they're going to dig their heels in on some kind of answer and and define their ministry by those things. They're going to draw tight lines in areas that God is not really saying he wants us to draw tight lines around. But it seems like the right response in the midst of those is, is what Job did at the end of all his questioning, where Job asked some really legitimate questions of God. And God didn't answer him. He just asked him some questions back and basically said, if you can't answer these, then you're not ready for, for the answers that you think you want to your questions. And Job wound up doing what? What did Job end up doing at the end of that book? It's actually, it's a great book to read in light of that question. My man Luther, showing up. Yeah, he did. He repented. He said, I, I was, I didn't know what I was doing when I came at you that way. God is basically, he said, Luther, how do you know that? You are learning, you learn, know your Bible. And then he worshiped. Then he worshiped, which I think needs to be the response when we get overwhelmed with not getting the answers that we, again, to legitimate questions. And God says, I'm not giving you answers to that right now. I'm God. The most amazing thing about the book of Job to me is that God lets Job and his friends run their mouths for 30 chapters. For a chapters. lot of chapters, yeah. So, and yes. and he, just, he just lets that line run, you know, and, and they're given misapplied theology. Some of it's true, and they're just... And Job's getting more and more ticked that he's not being vindicated in the midst of these things. And, and it is. I mean, when God finally shows up, he doesn't answer one of their questions. He just says, I got something to say to you, Job. Yeah. And completely turns the whole thing. Yeah. He worships. All right, let's go. Is that mom camp back there? Or is that a different group back there? Okay, mom camp gets one more question. Then we're going to go in a different direction. Okay. Really yeah, it depends how you define free That's will. That's a really good so follow-up. Sometimes people use the term free will. Sometimes people use the term free will in a way I don't even think it exists for God. So I don't think God has free will the way people talk about it sometimes because God is his character, and his character always determines what he does. Right. So we say with Adam and Eve, they had the ability not to sin. But we have now inherited their fallen nature once they did sin, that doesn't have the ability not to sin. So we, com we, we very much lack a free will when it comes to not sinning until God changes our will in a Godward direction. And so, so there, I, I don't think this thing exists that has no 
determining factors besides my choice at the moment. I think my character, my, my inclinations, my affections, my desires, my thinking determine what I do. Uh, it, it's not sort of just every second I can just do whatever. Uh, and, and now that God's given me a new heart and is transforming it to be like Jesus, again, I, and in, a, in a very wonderful sense, I'm losing some of my freedom to sin because I see it as horrific as it is. And, and I'm not that person who would ever choose that anymore. Hmm. And when I'm in heaven, I will not have the ability to sin anymore because I'll be, complete, be completely conformed to the image of Christ. Hmm. And I won't say, oh, I've lost my freedom. I'll say, yes, God's changed my heart to the point where, where all I will choose now is a Godward inclination. Mm. You ask deep questions, you will get deep answers. Some people are like, oh, that's why I don't hang out with theology people, the seminary people. But it's good to go down deep down that rabbit hole I and think about that think stuff. Deeply, absolutely, people. and bump up against an, an unimaginably, an unimaginable God. And Who, honestly, that's one of the biggest challenges when I do high school. There are youth pastors like, dude, come on. Yeah. And and I say to them, look, I will be over the head of your fourteen-year-olds because I'm deeply concerned about that kid who's about to graduate from high school yep. in eight months and go to go to Cal State Fullerton and have a philosophy prof yep. who's putting spinning his head around. Yeah. And so so I am not going to just put it on such a shelf. I, and I say to him, I'm going to treat you like grownups and I'm going to ask you to really think and work hard and not just wait for the next funny story. That's how we're, we've been conditioned so often. Yeah. It's just yep. tell jokes and be cool and don't, I don't yeah. want to play into that consumeristic yeah. shallowness. Yeah. All right, good. Let's talk about church for a second. That sounded like a cranky old man. That did. That was cranky. Get off my lawn. You know. <laughs> all right. Church. Church doesn't seem like it's all that important these days. It didn't seem like it before COVID. Um, and then COVID came and everybody went home and sat on their couch and kind of took what they were going to get from church services online and and if you're on social media, like lots of bad stuff's going on in the church and there's leaders falling and there's abuse scandals and there's, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention's got all kinds of crisis going on. And it's just real easy to be like, ah, I don't need church anymore. I think, I think especially for younger generations, like some of us who are older are doing it for no other reason than for habit because it's become such a part of our life. But I know my kids are, they're not, they're not hanging out with people apart from our home who really value local body, okay? So I know we can talk about this for hours alone, but why should we go to church in light of it seeming like we don't really need to? Well, I, I would want to highlight lots of things, but I'll let me just stick with three. One, if you believe the Bible's the word of God and it's the authority in your life, you don't have an option to be meaningfully involved in a local church. It's alarming to me how many Christians who believe the Bible's their authority think about and treat the church like an optional spiritual discipline. That if it's working for me, great. If not, ah, I'll, I'll go for a walk in the park instead. Yeah. Journaling is an optional spiritual discipline. Okay. I'm, which I'm glad, because yeah. I've tried it and I've never been able to get it going. It's optional. 
Yep. And I don't feel guilty about that because the Bible does not say thou must journal anywhere. Take but it or leave it. Take do it not forsake it. the assembling together of saints as some are in the habit of doing. Okay. Uh, but spur one another on love and good deeds and all the more as you see the day approaching. So the, the writer of the Hebrews says, judgment day is coming. So not go buy a ranch and ammo in Texas, but <laughs> judgment day is coming. So go to church. Spend time together. Go to church. And spur one another on a love and good deeds, and take care of widows and orphans in distress in your midst, and the poor people there. And you make sure that church discipline's being carried out, the Lord's Supper's being practiced, baptism's happening, you're sending missionaries into the nations, you're, you're having elders and deacons, you're preaching the word authoritatively, you're doing all the thi things, a body of believers raises their hand and says, we're the local church. And, and that's who we are. We, you know where to find us. Yeah. And we don't get to pick who's part of it. All you need to do to be part of it is trust Jesus for your salvation, and you can be part of this local body. And so it's it, biblically a non-negotiable command. Second, if I love Jesus, I have got to love his bride. And I can't just love his bride theoretically. i got to love his bride practically, in reality, in relationships with people who really annoy me and will be hurtful and disappointing and ghost you after caring for them for years, don't get me going, yep. and, and, and be really hard to work with. And that's part of the glory of it and the challenge of it. You don't get to pick who's in it. And, and there will be people you would never be friends with in your local church that's family to you because of Jesus, not because of your demographic similarities and that and that you have all these common interests, but because you are unified in Jesus. And, well, we and that word's important, though, that unified word, right? In, in Jesus's uh, priestly prayer, that was the theme, is that these folks, my followers, God, that you brought me, the fathers brought to me, they would be one. And he's not naive to the fact that everything that you just said is true. This is going to be a hot mess. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be meanness. People are still going to do stuff out of their flesh. And yet the brilliance of that is because they have a mechanism for spirit-led confession and spirit-led forgiveness and spirit-led brokenness that says genuinely, I am sorry for my role in this, that will, that will almost become an evangelistic message to the world because normal people don't do that very well. And if you're not committed to that process you just described, you shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's that serious that you stay in it with that sort of thing. You're, you're not in, in healthy fellowship if you won't move towards someone in that sort of way. And so it's biblical. It's, it's Jesus' bride. Yeah. So you don't have an option of loving his bride. It's like you say to me, Eric, I, I, I love you, but I hate your wife. That's not going to work. But you well, said so. it yourself. The bride is sure ugly. is ugly. The bride is ugly, yes. <laughs> and you need to know that. As an well, ugly one of my bride, favorite that's sermon, terrible. One of my favorite sermons on the church by Steve Brown. His <laughs> refrain through the whole sermon is, the bride is ugly. <laughs> and, but the second point of the sermon is, but she's getting better. <laughs> and the third point is, and one day she's going to be perfect. Yes. Right? And so on the way, we got to hang in there with, with the bride. And the other thing is, okay. I desperately need the church if I'm ever going to grow the way God calls me to. Is this to. number three? Yeah. Number three, okay. I desperately need the church. So, so it's commanded in the Bible it's required if you love Jesus, and it's necessary for your own spiritual growth. So word, worship, prayer, service, giving, missions, suffering, uh, proclamation, 
fellowship. All these things take place wonderfully in places like this, but they only kick into gear in a real life way, long haul in a local church context. Yeah. Para church organizations like Hume are wonderful, but they're para alongside the local church organizations, which is why one of the reasons I love Hume is they're conscious of that. Yeah. I see this in my own heart. I've seen it uh, in working as a teaching elder in a church that so many of us come to church as consumers, which is just a, it's a fundamental problem that we come to church or we don't go to church for reasons that have to do with I'm not getting my needs met in some kind of way or I can get this done in some other way. And what I've been confronted with that's been super helpful is that maybe church isn't primarily about me. It's really supposed to have a whole lot to do with God, right? I mean, that's the, I mean, we use the word worship, but it's like, okay, am I really going to worship this God that I say I'm following throughout the week? And it's a worship service, okay, not an event. That's right. right? So you're going okay. to serve as an act of worship. And that's where I'm going, that, that, and I used to see this, like so much of what was, what was important about what happened when I went to church happened actually after the ceremony of church was over. It was in the communications in the hallway. It was in being able to follow up with somebody that had told me a story about something they're struggling with. It was, you know, some pain that someone's going through or some form of suffering where I can come and stir them up to love and good deeds, that I can come and be the body of Christ to them. And that really I should be going to church with a list of people that I'm looking forward to checking in with and, and having some sense of responsibility for them. And you can't do that on the couch as right. easily. I guess you could sit there and text and, people. And with a heart of humility knowing I need these people. To I need them for me. me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They change me. So, all right, you check that. And that clock's a little fast right there too. Um. And we're just getting warmed up, man, so, yeah. Any questions about church? Yes, sir. Sammy, right? Yeah. All right, Sammy, nice and loud so everybody can hear. Sam's a thinker. I know he is. Sam's a thinker. I know. Are you guys familiar with, like, his book, uh, Rich Church, Rich Church, Poor Church? It's an older book, right? Yeah, By I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read it. Uh, What's his name? Don't, don't call people out. Don't call people out. Okay, right. keep going. Keep going. But, um, but I realized, you know, uh, it, it's, it's been difficult to reconcile with that, like how do we minister to everybody? Because that means uh, an orphan spirit can come out of the church and Christ. But do you believe that the role of the church should be more, of, of the, the rich church should be more to impart that wealth in this time of like ministry to injustice or to poor churches? Their 
I, well, I don't think re- there's anything. Repeat the question. Repeat, repeat the. Sentence. I don't think there's anything wrong with a church reflecting the community that it's in. Uh, I, I don't think anybody should be feel guilty in a farm community in Iowa to have 80 percent of the people farmers who are white and represent that community, right? Um, and so I, I don't think we should beat ourselves up if we reflect our community. Uh, then if we don't, then the question is why not? And then the question is, what is the most biblically faithful way to seek a diversity that shows the world a unity in Christ rather than a unity in our dem- demographic similarities? Those are very, very big and important questions. And so, um, yeah, I think the church should be caring for the poor, sending missionaries. That's an, a great way to care for the poor. But also, uh, usually a wealthy community doesn't have to go too far to find one with, with more needy people. And, and so I, I think that's a helpful way to think. And I wasn't even going to the diversity thing and what I was hearing Sammy's question, although I think that's true. I mean, so I, you know what I don't like, Sammy? I don't like when, when too broad or general um, answers get given to a question like that. I, I said yesterday, and not everybody was here yesterday, but, you know, the Bible says some things about paying attention to what goes on with prisoners and to widows and to orphans. It seems to be slanted in the direction of making sure that if you have resource, that you're not hogging that off for yourself and that you're negligent towards people that don't have. Yes. So in those places where we're not doing a good job of that, let the words speak to us in such a way that we're convicted to do that in our own spaces. Again, where that, that can be true anywhere in the country. Uh, and where people are doing a good job of that, keep doing it. I think here's where, I, here's where it gets dangerous. I think when we let our politics on either side speak louder to us than the Bible, that is where we get ourselves in trouble. And I would just leave it at that. And it happens from both directions that when political agendas speak louder than what the word says, the word should be enough for us to have a ton of concern for people who don't have. So if that's not on our agenda anywhere inside of our local congregation, then I think we're missing something. We didn't even talk about this yet. We need to, you and I. But I read something by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung among the the high school kids a couple nights ago. And it, it was going after this imposing my agendas, the things I really care about, whether it's the environment and my carbon footprint or firearms or whatever it is, and making that what Jesus is all about and sort of making my my priorities socially, culturally, politically, the thing about Jesus. And I kept and he was calling just about everybody out who would do that. But the students couldn't help but cheering for the ones they agreed with. they agreed with. Yeah, and I was like, you're proving his point in what you're doing, right? It's like Jesus is all about the Second Amendment. And they're like, wait, wait, or Jesus is about driving a hybrid car. And and it's like, guys, you you hear what you're doing. You're you're actually fulfilling his, his, his caricature of you. And so... We can't help it in some ways from doing it, but it's important to back up and say, what are the priorities Jesus brings to the table that we need to represent as his ambassadors? Yeah, there was a guy named Matt Michalatis that wrote a book called Imaginary Jesus, which is worth writing down if you've never heard of that before, where he basically brings to life the very thing that DeYoung was doing in a fictional format 
But basically his, his argument is that we need to strip ourselves of the imaginary Jesuses that we bought into and, and not assume, again, I, you and I have said this to each other, I think that we need to spend way more time with the Jesus that's in the Bible. And I know that sounds so fundamental, but again, do a self-check. Are you getting regular doses of the Jesus that comes out of the pages of John chapter 4, 5, and 6, like I heard Eric do yesterday? I need to keep becoming reacquainted with him and because I'm being pressured from lots of other Jesuses that are being served up to me, even through some churches, oh my goodness, and online presences. And that's not to say you can't have opinions about all kinds no, of things. Oh, for sure. Right. And you said there's some overlap. Yeah, there, yeah. There's actually not, yeah. all the, not all of those imaginary Jesus things right. to stand for were necessarily wrong. You need your Bible. All right, go ahead, Charlie, and then we'll go back there. <clears throat> Yeah. Instead of, you know, bailing and going to another church that maybe does that, but actually being church, how do you do that with a past? Yeah. And I'll let Eric do this next because Eric's in this situation more regularly than I am. I would just say this. And what I have said to people is when I was an elder, come respectfully. Right. And a good, which, again, we've said this in here. We're not very good at just coming like Daniel did with respect. Please. Could we have this conversation with each other? You guys are doing a great job in so many areas. I know your job is overwhelming. This is something that's been brought to my consciousness that I want to talk to you guys about. Right. And, and try to have that conversation. And I've seen that go really poorly, even when it's done and approached the right way. And I've seen it go well. And, and heard stories of it going well. So that's what I would put on the table. A lot of the answer to that question will be in the determined by the polity of the church we're talking about. So if it's plurality oh, yeah, explain of elders. So what does that yeah, mean? So if it's plurality of elders, or if it's senior pastor, or if it's congregational, it, it, the way decisions are made in, to, to large part will determine how you then approach that that structure, that polity in how you would address something like that. When so, you've got denominational issues, too, right, frankly, right. with some of the issues that we might want to bring up, because denominations tend to emphasize certain parts of the Bible, sometimes to the exclusion of others. That's just the truth. So if you start poking at some of those things that our denomination maybe doesn't put as much emphasis on, right, there's emotions involved in that, and there's yeah, some idolatry sometimes that gets involved in that. So the first thing I want to ask, <laughs> there are four categories I think that are helpful to think of. Core doctrines, convictions, opinions, and questions. And I'm always trying oh, to think, good. what is this issue I'm thinking about relative to those categories? Same again, same one more time. Core doctrines, convictions, opinions, and questions. Core doctrines define Christianity. Okay. They define a Christian. Convictions will determine what church you go to. Okay. You'll say, those are Christians, but my view of baptism, my view of the gifts of the Spirit, my, my view of these convictions, or even who you marry. Okay. Oh, boy. I mean, it'd be tough for somebody who thinks yeah. the miraculous gifts stopped at the end of the first century to marry somebody who speaks in tongues every day. That'd be really tough. Yep. So you could say they're both Christians, but those are convictions that can be deal breakers for linking arms in ministry and marriage and, and church. So... So there are convictions, but then there are opinions that you may have an opinion about, but you could go to a church that does things differently than your opinion on that. 
worship style, church structure polity-wise, the way they run things. And then there are questions that you don't think there are answers to. So the first thing mm. I would want to do is what kind of issue is this? How much conviction should I? Is this a flag planter or is there something more systemic or foundational I need to be more concerned about? Or can I let this one stay in the opinion Just category? Just opinion, yeah. 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 So, that's so that's the first thing I'd want to do. But then if I did think it was detrimental to the health of the church, and this was my church and I'm going to hang in there, I, I would want to respectfully, humbly work within the structure that then makes decisions whatever is going to be the most edifying way to do it. And that may be talking to the pastor if he's the one who makes the decisions, or it may be talking to the elders if that's how Small group leader yeah. or somebody. Small group right? leader, yeah. That was set up. Yeah. Are they done out there, Art? They are done? I love you all. Good. Goodbye. Yeah. We'll pray for you. We will pray for you. Go ahead, Art. What are you going to say? What was your question? And then maybe we'll stop. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does, even though you were kind of all over the place. I really do get what you're saying. I do, because I've struggled with it, again, in positions as a, as a church leader and as a follower in the church and in a parachurch organization. Like, I really do get that. And here's what I keep coming back to for myself. There was a man that said this to me just after I became a Christian. He said, you know what? When we get to heaven, we're all going to get a theological adjustment. Every one of us is going to get a theological adjustment. You're going to need that Bible, aren't you? Yes. No, no. Go clothed. Go clothed. We're all going to get a theological adjustment. And I need to keep saying that to myself. Um, I need to get better at being able to disagree with people and still love them. And we say that, you just said it, you just asked the question, how do you do that? Well, I don't know, by the Spirit's power and by, by seeing, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to go soft on things. I, we just talked last night about the importance of drawing lines. Like, I'm all about drawing lines. I, we live at a time where lines are being erased all the time. That makes me angry. It, it makes me want to fight. Okay, that's, that's kind of what's inside of me. So I feel that. 
And yet we live in this hostile time where people don't know how to be civil with each other at all in general. And I'm just saying, church, come on. Come on, can I find a way to be in great disagreement with this person and still want what's best for them, still move towards them, still, you know, how does this stuff even come up? It comes up in arguments usually, right, in verbal arguments. Can I separate myself from the verbal argument and still help this person do life? Well, again, I'm talking about people that I'm close to and that I'm around in, the, in church spaces. And Eric said that, like, there's lots of people in church you don't like at all. But I need to be able to love them and not just give lip service to that. And I don't think we do a very good job of that. that there's a general collective statement I said I don't like to make, Sammy, but I'm going to make it. Collectively, I don't think we're doing a very good job of that these days in the American church. Because that's a whole nother deal. Uh, you know, we see the whole world through our American experience of what church is. You take some trips around the world. Actually, that's a good way, actually, to clean up some of the stupid stuff that goes on between us. Go ahead and see what's going on in the church in other parts of the world and what those folks are worried about. Like, really? And then when you come back home, it's like, okay, again, I, I can do better than this. I can do better than just to keep being, still draw your lines. I'm not saying we're not drawing lines. I'm just not going to die over them because they're going to get adjusted. They're going to get adjusted. Should we stop there? Oh, no, you've got one? No, I think we should walk away from those. Now, what am I supposed to do with them, though? Again, do I slander them on social media? Is social media the place to, to take out my wrath on them because they're outside the lines? Like, I think there's this whole group, especially men, but there's definitely some women that are a part of it, that just think that it's their responsibility to make sure that the whole rest of the world knows where all the heretics are in the church. And while there's, there's a part of that that I appreciate, I think that's doing way more damage. The way that we're going about pointing out what we think is wrong. I think there's a Christian way to walk away from some of that and to stand and to say that I think this is wrong and I'm separating myself from it. But there's a Christian way to do that that I don't think gets modeled very well very often because it's way more fun to get the flamethrower out and set that thing on fire, right, and feel justified in doing so in the name of God and there's like fires burning all over the place in this country right now in the church. And I just don't, I think there's, there's something that grieves the heart of God with the way it's going down. I'm getting myself in trouble now, aren't I? With some people in here, maybe. All right, go ahead. Yes, that is what I'm saying. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I think the basics of just of, of some basic vacation Bible school level ways of being with one another have become so cliche to us that we just think we don't have to do it anymore. I didn't talk about this this week, but, you know, I talked about gratitude. That's a huge one that I think, like I said, that we just have somehow come to just ignore in the American church. That Even though it's on every other page of the New Testament, we think we can just not be grateful and it's going to be okay. 
That's a problem. The close second for me is the whole forgiveness, the whole forgiveness motif that's in the scriptures. And that we would be regularly reconciling with one another and that we would be doing everything as much as it depends on me to be at peace with all men, which takes humility, which takes a posture of love, right? Again, words that just become cliche to us, I think. And, and so we just so easily sort of give ourselves permission just to act like the world towards one another. So I say that as I'm saying it to myself regularly. I need to be reformed and transformed by the renewing of my mind and the scriptures that are calling me to some of these basic things over and over and over again and not give myself permission to be a jerk in the name of Jesus. Is that where we want to end? That's a good place to end. Don't be jerks for Jesus. All right, turn that into T. Those are good T-shirts. Mom camp next year. Don't be jerks for Jesus. All right, I need two people to pray for these kids that are over here and for Eric who's going over there to share the word with them. Could two people pray for them? Actually, no, Art, you were going to lead us in how we were going to pray our way out. I'm going to stop, and I'm just going to pass it to you. How, go ahead and do the announcements you want to do, and then we'll pray for everybody.